The American dream, in many ways, is tied to owning a home. We can't talk about that without talking about who wasn't allowed to own those homes. That's 2022 DuPont winner Sean Myers, a digital producer at NBC Bay Area, talking about a big subject in this year's awards, the American housing crisis. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, the executive director of the Professional Prizes Program. I am joined today to discuss award-winning journalism with my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So it's been a very big week for the DuPont Columbia Awards. Oh, yeah? What's, what, tell, tell more. <laughs> Do tell. Surprise me. I know you'll be surprised to hear that we just announced the 2023 DuPont Columbia Awards finalists. It is a stellar group of stories that are across platforms and um, highlight a lot of breaking news coverage and mm -hmm. a lot of other really important work from the big stories of the year in Ukraine and Afghanistan and a lot of terrific local reporting, which brings us to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Lisa, tell us about the conversation we're going to hear today. Well, this is a conversation with uh, NBC Bay Area and, you know, local investigative work is a very, very important part of the DuPont Awards. We had several in the finalists this year. This one, it's a documentary. It's both a dramatic personal story that's happening right now, and then they spend a lot of time uh, digging into the historical context, how we got to this place, and some investigative work on what's really happening. Um, and what is really happening is that this group of women illegally occupied a house in a neighborhood that they had grown up in but that they can no longer afford. Um, and they did it to, to make a statement about what's going on in the housing crisis in San Francisco but, you know, all over the country. Right. This is in Oakland in particular, right? Right. And so... In this conversation, you're going to hear the term redlining, which you may already know, but in case you don't, it comes from the practice of singling out areas on city maps that were so-called investment risks. And if you were trying to buy a home in these areas, you would be less likely to get a loan. Um, and so this story really shows the legacy of these discriminatory and racist practices and how all of it uh, is contributing to the housing problems that we're dealing with today. In the film, they took great pains to make the point several times uh, that these women were actually illegally occupying the house. And they also spent a fair amount of time trying to track down the corporations that are buying up all this property. There was a representative of one of them who kind of kind of gave their side of things, but it, it's a really, really complicated issue. So who did you speak to, Lisa? Uh, in this remote interview, you're gonna hear multiple voices. My name is Michael Bott, and I'm a producer for the investigative team at NBC Bay Area. My name is Stephanie Udruni, and I'm the vice president of news for NBC Bay Area. My name's Sean Myers. I'm the digital special projects producer here at NBC Bay Area. Okay, great. Well, let's get to it. This is an edited version of Lisa's conversation with NBC Bay Area. For people who haven't seen this story, could you give me a thumbnail sketch? 
The Moms of Magnolia Street follows the journey of three unhoused working mothers in the city of Oakland um, who sort of take matters into their own hands and illegally occupy a vacant home in West Oakland that is owned by a large Southern California home flipping corporation that buys and sells, you know, thousands of homes every year. They had just reached a breaking point. You know, homelessness is out of control here in the in the Bay Area. And rather than leaving the city that they all had called home and were born and raised in, they said, no, you know, we deserve to be here and we're going to make our stand. Oakland doesn't have a housing crisis. It's a moral crisis. It's a profiteering crisis. It's a speculators in my hood crisis. We should all be outraged. We have become so desensitized to people, children living on the streets. Housing is a human right. And today I'm using that right. What these moms have gone through is just an example of what a lot of other people are going through. So housing touches all of us here, so we knew this was an important issue and story. It's part of our regular coverage. So for people who don't understand the housing situation in the Bay Area, uh, can you give me a thumbnail sketch of that? Housing is an issue for everybody in the Bay Area, whether you own, you rent, you're trying to rent, or live here. The cost of living is astronomical. And for people who were born and raised here, as with the Moms of Magnolia, they're figuring out they can't live here anymore. So this was an issue deep in a community where people who are from the Bay Area are no, no longer able to live here. And, and one thing I'll add is, is, you know, we drive by homeless encampments every day. They are everywhere in the Bay Area. One thing I think that these women highlighted were this sort of other more invisible segment of the homeless uh, population or unhoused population who are living in, in cars, you know, parking, sleeping in, in a shopping center at night or sleeping with their kid on a fold out bed at their aunt's house, you know, in, in the suburbs. These women, I think, represented and put a face on those people that we don't necessarily see every day. And, and I think exposed that this is actually a much deeper issue than we think it is just on, on the surface. Tell me a little bit about the origin story of this. How did it how did it start? Because my understanding is you weren't reactive. This was proactive, right? Sure. So like Stephanie said, housing is the biggest, if not one of the top stories across the Bay Area. And so we have a lot of sources who are in the housing world, the tenant rights, tenant advocate world. And this story started with a tip. I got wind of in action that was going to be happening sometime in the near future. They were vague on details, but we knew that there were going to be some unhoused mothers who sort of took this dramatic action and were going to likely be occupying a house. From there, we had no idea what was gonna happen. Were the cops gonna come in on day one and, and kick them out? Was this gonna turn into like a prolonged issue was the media going to pay attention were people going to care so we actually interviewed two of the moms about a week before they took this action and just talked to them about what their plan was what their sort of anxieties were about this getting getting their life stories up to this point 
We are Mothers for Housing. We plan to take and occupy vacant houses from speculators. We believe that families sleeping on the street deserve to be there. I grew up being homeless. It's sad that we live in a state where it's comfortable and people close their eyes to children sleeping on the streets. Our end goal is to own the home, to purchase it from the speculator and put it into a community land trust so it'll always be affordable. And it was really right after that point that we said, there's something here. These women are truly compelling characters. They've got an incredible story to tell and they're taking this dramatic stand. And we think it's important that we document this. Oh, I see. So you were investigating this around this story and then you started following the women? They were sort of in parallel. We had spent the year prior to this story uh, looking at corporate ownership. And so on that day, I think that they uh, occupied the home for the first time. I remember Michael coming to my edit bay and saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this situation? Is it possible that maybe you could find who owns that home or, or what may be behind this, you know, entity? And so that was when I sprang into action and spent, you know, the next year, year and a half getting a sense of, of how active they were. That was one of the things that made it so powerful and substantive was that you were following this human drama, but you were also then getting behind the, the actual data and the investigation of, you know, the bigger picture of who owns this, all this property. So Mom's story took us down the rabbit hole of looking at single family homes that are owned by corporations in the Bay Area. Our investigation started by looking at the owner of the mom's house, 2928 Magnolia. So we found that Catamount Properties 2018 LLC was the owner there. And when you find one of those LLCs, it, it brings you to another LLC, right? It's a sort of yarn that you're untangling as you work through those records. Duke Partners, Eagle Vista Equities, Granite Ranch Opportunities. And then at the end of the day, Champery Duke, Champery Multifamily, Champery Property Fund. They had about 125 properties in the Bay Area that they owned. Was it a hard thing to find out? Um, tedious, I would say. It's, it's a tedious process to go through and find, you know, an LLC that's on the housing deed. And then you trace that back to the Secretary of State and, oh, it's owned by another LLC. And what's that LLC tied to, right? And so it all starts with just documenting that work, right? Um, a spreadsheet and getting all the names and the filings into one place. And it's something that you don't see from the street, right? There's a part in there where we're with Misty you know, at her childhood home where her grandparents raised her. And we found out standing there, actually, that another speculator owned that home. I don't even know how to feel now. I'm just getting hit with that information. To know that these corporations are still coming in and able to buy up homes 300 at a time, there, this has to be stopped. It was a genuine moment of, my goodness, we can't believe this house too is owned by somebody and we didn't know until I just pulled it up on my phone and thought, I'll check this too. So, you know, that I think that's part of what we take pride in is doing that work that other people won't know, you know, what connects to what. And one other thing I'll say about that, just real quick, is there's a major lack of transparency on the government side when it comes to property ownership. Every county has the assessor role of who owns every piece of property in their county. But when you ask for those records, some counties quoted us $10,000, $14,000.
for a database that they already have on a CD that could be just handed over the counter immediately. That also uh, gives cover to sort of a lot of these corporations who don't necessarily want people to know what they're doing, and it just makes it that much more difficult. And so we really had to come up with a strategy to sort of unmask all of these LLCs and tie them to, to the company that really owns all of them. And Wedgwood, the company that owns the home occupied by the moms, we traced more than 100 separate LLCs to that one company. They buy you know, thousands of homes, and often there is a person living in that home and for their business model is to renovate and flip the home as fast as possible. And there have been times where they've been accused of violating tenant protection laws and in other rules governing, you know, evictions and tenant rights over the years, you know, from Southern California all the way up, up to the Bay Area. Tell me a little bit about the, the moment of the climax of the story, right? When the cops come and they confront the moms and it lasts for hours. How did you report that? Where were all of you? What was going on? Yeah, so the night before, you know, they had a big rally with the moms. Hell no, we won't go. Speaking at the foot of the steps. No matter what happens, this that's being built right now, this is the house that the moms built. Hey. We had someone within the crowd, you know, I was up there with a camera right on the, the porch of the house at, at that moment. Um, and then I went home, our photographer went home, and our morning crew took over in front of the house. And then of course, I get a text message right when the police show up. I live you know 15 minutes away, so I busted over there with a camera and started shooting stuff a, as well. And we broadcast a lot of it live. I was watching at home, and I'm thinking, okay, let, you know, let's hope this doesn't go violent. So, you know, we knew it was important to let the cameras continue to roll live. But I'll be honest, we were nervous about where, where this was going to go. When we saw those armored vehicles show up on the air and then there was a, con a confrontation. How do you feel threatened when you got a tank right behind you? We had a, a lot tank. of swear words blast out a on tank. television. Tank. A bunch of Gave me a little bit of a heart attack. Um, but we decided that it was important to let people see it unfold as it was happening. Did you embed? Was there any fly on the wall coverage? We, yeah, we, we did embed because they were in the house for four months. Yeah, I mean, months, this, yeah. this went on for a while. And so we covered this quite a bit with our daily news crews. Like we were in the, the, the night before the police came we were there, you know, in the house talking to the moms about how they feel and all that. We were right outside when, you know, the sheriff's deputies came in and kicked the door down. Uh, we spent time with the moms and, and their families. Um, so, you know, we followed them over the course of, of many months and they were all, all very gracious with their time and, and, you know, put a lot of trust in us because this was a controversial issue. Not everybody was in favor of what they did. I mean, if you read the comments on our stories, they, they got a lot of backlash. They got threats against them. And so to put faith in, I think, the media uh, in, in us in, in, in particular with this story, I think um, we, we appreciate the trust that they showed. What did you do to gain their trust? Anything you can share that 
would enlighten yeah. our students, for example? I, th I think they saw people that they were involved with saw our station and our investigative unit's commitment to housing and housing justice and covering things like wrongful evictions and covering things from, from the, a tenant perspective. And also just the fact we met with them several times with no cameras rolling. We feel that's extremely important, right? Build relationships with people, build trust, be transparent about your process. And I think we, like we live in the same community where we work, right? We cover this community day in and day out. So we can't sort of afford to parachute in on a story, extract, you know, stories and information out of people and then just sort of forget about them and, and burn those those bridges. So the long-term relationships and long-term trust, I think are really the foundation of what we do here. Were there times when you personally felt compelled to help the mothers and their children navigate what they were going through? I think that's always a, a tough one. And can you tell us about a moment like that and why or why not you re reacted the way you did? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't think the moms ever looked for our help in, in what they were doing. They were backed by a, a very strong team of both activists and community members. I mean, they had people move, help them move in on day one, bringing them groceries. Obviously, when you see homeless mothers and their children, it's hard not to feel a certain level of empathy for them and, and hope that everything turns out well for them in the end. At the same time, we know our role as journalists and there is a line that you have to respect there. And we, we were sort of just, you know, following their, their journey and hopefully telling their, their story in, in a, you know, way that rang true. So what they did was illegal, right? And you clearly say that at various points in the documentary. Can you talk a little bit about what the thought process was and how to present that to the public? You know, it's something that we talked about daily, weekly, monthly, certainly, you know, Stephanie and, and Sarah, our bosses, the way that Michael and I felt about it is that we can all agree that uh, unhoused populations, uh, people on the street is a problem. And so if we're starting from a place recognizing that homelessness is an issue that's impacting our entire, you know, communities here across the region, then here's what it's like to be in that position, right? And, and here's what it's like to have those voices centered and their perspective shown. Right um, now, of course, every time that we went in that direction, we felt like, OK, we need to bring this back in and and couch this in. This is illegal behavior. What they're doing is, you know, a stand. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really helpful point, especially at the journalism school. We have these students and they get involved with their subjects and they feel very strongly about the stories they're telling. And then they 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 kind of have a hard time saying, wait, I have to take a step back and make sure that I'm telling all the different sides or looking at this with some sense of fairness for other points of view, which I thought you did really well. And how did that happen? And how important was it? And it was something that you felt was from the beginning you were going to be doing? We, we had began reaching out to Wedgwood on day one, right? Because obviously we want, it's they, they own the house. We want to know what they have to say about this, what they're doing. Are they getting police involved? Are they trying to get the mothers out of the house? You know, we, we felt it was important to get their perspective in the story given given the huge role that they played here obviously we interviewed the law enforcement agencies that ultimately ev evicted them and you know their perspective was that this is a struggle that everybody faces and and you know we can't we can't make an, an exception here we can't let somebody take 
private property and ultimately, you know, a judge ruled against the moms in court and the sheriffs enforced the eviction and, and kicked them out. And I think if, you know, when we asked the moms and some of their supporters about the criticism they got, you know, for doing something that was illegal, you know, they will say that there's a difference between what is legal and what is morally right, right? They pointed back to the days of segregation where it was illegal for somebody to sit, you know, a black person to sit at, at a lunch counter. And they said, yeah, people sat there and broke the law. It was against the law, but, you know, were those laws morally right? And I think they say that, you know, the laws that allows thousands and thousands of, of people and, and families to be on the street need to be challenged. One of the really special aspects of the series was the historical context. Oakland has a very rich history of being the heart of movements for liberation, specifically Black liberation movements, you know, the Black Panthers. Oakland is seen as a threat because we are the city that will spark the fire, that will create a real movement. Talk a little bit about that. Why did you think it was important for the viewer to understand the history of Oakland and a group like the Black Panthers uh, when you're talking about ongoing housing and affordability crisis? You know, this action was rooted in those principles of the Panthers, right, of Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, right, that you need eyeballs on an issue to affect change. And so our initial interest in the history was just seeing that connection of what inspired this or why in Oakland, right? I, I was saying as we worked on this so many times, a story that could only happen in Oakland. And that in some senses, that's true, right, that um, there's this general sort of air in Oakland about people standing up for their rights, you know, or that's part of the tradition there. So that was where it was born. But, um, you know, when we talk about housing in America, which is the American dream in many ways is tied to owning a home, we can't talk about that without talking about who wasn't allowed to own those homes for so many years, even to today in many places. We talk about redlining, that's a 1937, you know, problem. That's today on every street, every block, every neighborhood you drive through looks a certain way because of these policies that are 100 years old and that continue uh, to this day. So I'm almost done here. I just want to know you all did this um, reporting two, you said two and a half years ago. Uh, we're at the end of 2021 as we're doing this. What are the updates for these women and for the story? I mean, actually, we just learn of a, of a major update. Uh, the, the house that the moms occupied and was later sold to the Oakland Community Land Trust has just been fully renovated. They are now turning that house into sort of transitional housing for other unhoused mothers. Uh, and it'll be sort of a, a place um, for people to live while they can kind of get back on their feet. And I think they have other ideas that they're not necessarily telling us about yet, but I know they have more plans for Moms for Housing. Um, and in, in addition to that, there's been legislation with literally, you know, Moms for Housing in the name of the bill. Um, and in fact, recently there is a grandmother out in the East Bay who is able to stay in her home and actually buy the home because of one of these uh, new laws that gave the tenant sort of first right of refusal to purchase the home. And there's the Bonta stuff there's this the week, Bonta. too. 
yes. Yes, I forgot about the other big update. There's another update. Uh, the California, new California Attorney General, uh, Rob Bonta, who actually before he became AG was, you know, he's a local lawmaker here and came out to support the mom. So it was very much in their camp. But he just announced $3.5 million civil judgment against Wedgwood for wrongfully evicting people living in the homes that they bought out of foreclosure. It's important to say that the moms were occupying it illegally. Yes. They were not tenants of this home. They were not, you know, they did not have those rights. But Wedgwood was fined for infringing on those rights in other cases. This has been great. I really appreciate your talking to me. Thank you so much for doing this. And congratulations on the win. Thank, Thank you. you. This story, The Moms of Magnolia Street, was produced back in 2021. But I have to say, it feels definitely as relevant now at the end of 2022 as it did then, because the housing crisis that they profiled in Oakland is being felt all around the country now. Yeah, I'm curious to see if other cities are going to reach a breaking point like the Moms of Magnolia Street, or if they probably already have in some cases. It would be a great thing to check out. The finalists are listed on our DuPont.org page because there's additional, like, just amazing, amazing reporting in these local areas and also all over the world. Right, to talk about the really incredible reporting that local reporters are doing that we try to elevate and highlight every year, definitely. Next month, we are bringing back the live event. We're bringing it back. Yes, the Professional Prizes Department, which Lisa and I run, will be hosting a conversation with Masha Gessen, prolific writer for The New Yorker, who recently won the John Chancellor Award here at the Journalism School, in conversation with our Dean, Jelani Cobb. I can't wait. It's going to be fascinating. And we will bring it to you in a few weeks' time. This episode of On Assignment was produced by Emily Russell and audio engineered by Carlos Del Rosario. We'll see you next month. Bye.